Remember, freedom is a gift from God. Choose to accept it, guard it, nourish it, share it with your loved ones. Don't let anyone take it from you. Choose to be free. Learn how to choose freedom with your host, Dr. Baruch Platner. Today I want to talk to you about the limits of representative government, which were clearly re- reached already in America, and <clears throat> take a little bit of a deeper dive into what it all means. In other words, or to put it simply, what are they, in other words, the globalist progressives, and I don't really care how you call them, if you want to call them commies, communists, I'm totally fine with that, even though they don't share much other than their totalitarian uh, tendencies and uh, power lust with uh, traditional mar- Marxist or Marxists or communists. Uh, so I'm going to continue calling them uh, globalist progressives or progressive globalists. And uh, if you want to call them communists, that's fine by me. Let's not quibble about uh, nomenclature here. But what is more important is understanding what it is that they're doing to us. And I'm not saying trying to do to us, but very much doing to us uh, right now as we speak. And so, uh, you know, the starting point of this discussion really has to be the realization by Americans, by you, each and every one of you, my dear listeners, that the political process in America is dead. In other words, all this talk about voting and Congress and Senate and the Constitution and uh, 2022 and 2024 and uh, third parties are taking over the uh, Republican Party or how Liz Cheney is losing her base of support all of that is, is, is a waste of time. It's a sham. It's a diversion. It has nothing to do with reality. Nothing. The America was taken over by a totalitarian regime and never ever in history has such a regime been overthrown at the ballot box, but I will even extend that further. Never ever has a regime like that been constrained by the will of the people. Not really. And if you don't believe me, just open your eyes to what is now happening in America. I mean, uh, if you want to look at it electorally and even believe, completely believe the election results, well, What happened was Biden got in, even though Trump got more votes than any other president ever running for re-election. But let's say we believe it. But then the Senate was, the Senate is substantially equal and in the House, Democrats suffered losses. So in no way, if you believe in this whole political nonsense, no way should, should it be interpreted by Democrats as some sort of enormous sweeping mandate to do as they please. And yet, that's exactly what they're doing. They are pushing aggressively right off the start the most 
aggressive, the most extreme, the most radical agenda, and they're only just getting started. You will be amazed to see what they do to you next. I won't because I expect the absolute worst, but I will be sad, but I will not be surprised. But they will push on you, on us, uh, horrors that you cannot even imagine. Mostly uh, under the header, heading of climate. But they will <coughs> um, destabilize the world, leading to wars and famines. They will take away your uh, energy and make it prohibitively expensive to use. They will limit your food supplies by and especially uh, the foods that we really need, like meat and dairy, making them prohibitively expensive for most people, and, and uh, uh, severely limiting their availability for most people. And they will press ahead with the most insane agenda when it comes to the perversion of homosexuality and, tra and transgenderism. So we ain't seen nothing yet, folks. And if you ask yourself, well, how can they do that? The answer is because they have the power and they have absolutely no, uh, how should I say, uh, idea or they, they, they never think that there will be another election in America, right? They're not afraid of being thrown out of power, quote unquote. There will never be another meaningful election in America, folks. This will never happen. There will be elections that will be used, as in many cases, like in China and the Soviet Union and today's Russia. There will be elections that will be used as a smokescreen for the common idiot. And ever so, ever so often... You know, some guy who is supposedly, you know, or some woman who is supposedly, uh, a, you know, representative of the other side, an opposition figure, will be allowed to take seat in, you know, the Congress or the Senate, where they will be absolutely useless. And in every single case, that person will be bought, paid and bought, uh, I mean, bought and paid for, controlled opposition, as they say. In other words, he will be a double agent working for the elites. Right? But it will give uh, the masses, again, the, the, the idiot masses, some sort of uh, excuse to cling, to cling to this idea that America still has a representative government. It does not. There will never be another meaningful election in America. Period. So now when we get that out of the way, it's a good idea to start talking about why they are doing to us what they're doing to us. And this is something I've also uh, uh, written in detail in the column that's coming out in parallel with this, <clears throat> with this show on, America out, on the America Out Loud platform. Check it out. But what they're doing to us uh, stems from the belief that Western elites have had uh, for a long time now, since the 70s, at least. So for about half a century, 
they've had this belief that if uh, more and more people can achieve the American dream, so-called, in other words, if because of advances in technology and the wealth that is generated by a free market or by the free enterprise system, if that is allowed to continue, more and more people will achieve what's called the American dream. In other words, you know, a split ranch with a clothes dryer and a washing machine and a dishwasher and uh, an attached two-car garage in which there will be at least one SUV or perhaps a pickup truck and uh, and so on, right? And a small plot of land and um, and what is, you know, what is that lifestyle characterized by? And this is a lifestyle that was basically created uh, and at the same time immediately achieved its uh, highest expression in the post-war baby boom of the 1950s, post-Second World War. You know, this is when so many Americans returning GIs and so on began to live like that. You know, our, our first home that we bought when we moved to America from Israel in Newton, Massachusetts was a split ranch that was built, was part of a kind of a cookie cutter subdivision that was built substantially on a drained swamp on the kind of the wrong side of the tracks in the suburb of Boston called Newton. And that's where those GIs lived. And they lived very well indeed by any standard, perhaps better, not perhaps, really, much better than any generation of humans on planet Earth before and since, and since. Today, the lifestyle is much lower in America, actually. And, you know, I have to say here, especially for whites. You know, but don't forget that back then America was overwhelmingly white. And so this American dream was was born in 1950s of, you know, having all these hundreds upon hundreds of cubic inches of internal combustion sitting in your garage, those big V8s, right? 400 cubic inches for him and 350 for her, you know? And uh, all the appliances you could ever want. And that generation of Americans also ate the most meat and dairy than any generation of humans that preceded them or, they, or that came thereafter. In other words, these were Americans that consumed an enormous amount of energy, both in terms of their homes, heating them, cooling them. Air conditioning was invented in the 50s, and that's how we got, you know, Florida going, for example, and places like Arizona and New Mexico and even Southern California, suburbs of San Diego, more inland where it's hot. Those places were too hot to live year-round before air conditioning came on board in the 1950s. So these elites, you know, they, they looked at this start, starting in 1970s, let's say, and they said, you know what, if... What if not only every American, but every human being on the face of the planet, like all the billions of 
Indians and Chinese and so on. What if they get this American dream lifestyle? The planet will never be able to support this this energy use. This they said, this this um, uh, this level of consumption of high quality foods like meat and dairy and so on. Um, now, the, uh, globalist progressives are idiots and exceedingly shallow thinkers because they project what they know about themselves to everybody else, to everybody else on planet Earth. And I can tell you right now that this American lifestyle in the suburbs and so on, as I described previously, is not the ideal lifestyle of most people on planet Earth. For example, um, many Asians, Chinese, Japanese, Indians, prefer to live in small apartments in uh, condo buildings, condominiums, because they love being together, they love being on top of each other, and they love being able to go down and walk everywhere to their little to their favorite little uh, eatery, to their favorite little bodega or dépanneur or grocery or however you want to call it. And unlike Americans, they don't really cherish having a little privacy or privacy and having a little backyard and playing fetch with their, you know, they, they if, if they want to do that, they go to the park where they're surrounded by a ton of other people, and that's how they want it to be. They don't want to be surrounded by a picket fence. They don't like it. So anyway, this idea that uh, the American uh, suburban dream is somehow applicable to all humanity is dumb. And nevertheless, that's how the, the, the progressive globalists started with this idea. And they said, oh my God, this will kill the planet. So they worked out a plan that we kind of see the culmination of today. And this plan has uh, all kinds of names and so on. And also, I'm not suggesting that there's some cabal. It doesn't have to be that way. There's not cabal. I will say it's not cabal, it's banal. In other words, you don't have to envision, you know, these sinister people getting in a room like in Davos and so on. Maybe some of that is happening here and there. But it's not necessary, or that conspiratorial thinking is not necessary in order to understand what's happening to us. <clears throat> what is happening is that a bunch of folks who are more rich than they are smart independently came to this thinking that the human masses cannot be allowed to achieve this American lifestyle and something had to be done about it because it was killing the planet quote unquote so they devised the kind of a multi-pronged attack multi-pronged attack and in my column i talk about four you know you can formulate in several different ways but i chose to formulate it as four prongs, a kind of a four-pronged fork with which they want to stick us all and kill us. And in no particular order, these prongs are veganism, feminism, 
environmentalism, right? And um, uh, we'll, we'll talk about each and every one of them, and maybe you'll you find uh, the feminism and the veganism uh, kind of strange, but they're very, very important for our discussion here. And we'll start with actually feminism. You know, uh, human females have a unique role to play in the development of the human race because they are the only ones that can conceive and carry to term and deliver and raise new human beings called babies. Right? Only women can do that. Right? And because of that, women have always, throughout history, had a, a very unique place in our society. Because without them, and without their participation, willing or not, the human race could not continue. So we will uh, t talk more about this in the next segment. Stay tuned. Well, my fellow Americans, how did you feel watching footage on the news of domestic terrorists looting our stores and burning our cities down? Uh, you were probably disgusted and angry as much as I was. It's disturbing what's going on. Well, you'd be shocked to know that your shopping habits are supporting these extremists. Companies like Amazon, Nike, Disney, FedEx, it's an endless list, and they've been supporting these radical groups. Let's stop supporting companies that fund these extremist groups. We can all do our part. Visit shoptotheright.com and you'll find businesses in a nationwide database and companies that are aligned with our American values. Visit shoptotheright.com and let's all make a difference. Welcome back to the show, my friends. So in the last segment, we summarized how the progressive globalist elites, our overlords, have been using for a while and now with much, much greater force than ever before, this four-pronged approach against us regular people. Um, and the four prongs are veganism, feminism, environmentalism, and transgenderism. And I, start, uh, I ended up the previous segment talking about uh, feminism and how uh, the females of the human species, of our species Homo sapiens, have a unique role to play in the existence of the human race, in the existence of our species, because they're the only ones that can um, conceive, care, carry to term, and then give birth, and then raise human babies. Now, this is something that human beings have known since the very beginning. And in, in many, if not most, civilized societies, women were, in many cases, coerced into doing just that. In other words, into having children and as many children as possible per woman. And there were uh, a number of reasons for it. One is that uh, 
conceiving is fraught for a woman, especially throughout most of human civilization where we had no modern medicine, with very significant risk to her well-being. Right? Um, it was extremely dangerous for a woman up until as late as just a hundred years ago to conceive a child because uh, pregnancy in and of itself uh, posed significant health risks and then certainly delivery in the age before the, the concept of sepsis it was even known was very uh, was a very uh, dangerous thing for a woman to, to, to go through and uh, the other part was that uh, uh, child mortality was exceedingly high. And because of this high child mortality, a woman, in order to maintain something like uh, at least on par human population, in other words, at least maintain a population today, we only need 2.1 average uh, births per woman, right? Why? Because we have small child mortality. So if you imagine that if, if one woman gives birth, if every woman on average gives birth to two, to two um, new human beings, in other words, if on average every woman gives birth twice, our population would still fall because we still have some child mortality. But, I'm talking about in the West, but adding this point one fixes that. Well, back before there was uh, modern medicine, you probably needed something like five, at least, births per woman on average, maybe more. Right? So the two could survive out of those five. And maybe it was more than that. And maybe it was more like eight or ten. So in other words, women were, were it was necessary, absolutely necessary, for the preservation, if not growth, of human populations, for women to conceive and give birth maybe around eight, 10 times or between 5 and 10 times during their productive life spans, which only last between, let's say, ages, I don't know, let's say 13, 14. Back then, women achieved puberty a little later because of nutrition, more poor nutrition and so on. And let's say at most 35 <clears throat> back then. So women had about, let's say, 20 years in which they really had to give birth maybe 10 times. And perhaps uh, many women would prefer not to do that. With all their goodwill and willingness to sacrifice and their uh, instinct, motherly instincts and so on, uh, putting their bodies through the kind of Russian roulette that was involved in uh, getting pregnant throughout most human history up until quite recently, repeatedly, not once or twice, but repeatedly, maybe as much as or as many as 10 times, would have been a lot to ask from a woman. And so they weren't asked. They were substantially... Uh, forced to have uh, unprotected sex 
with their husbands as many times as the husbands desired, they could not say no or engage in contraception or abortion. And they were substantially kind of forced to uh, conceive. And now, clearly, in the West, that's not the case now. It hasn't been for a while. And, you know, neither am I recommending a return to that practice, you know, God forbid. But what the feminists did was they went to war with the idea of uh, women conceiving and giving birth in principle. So regardless of how many times uh, and for what reason, the feminists said no. Giving birth, and progressively so, you know, uh, we are reaching now the crescendo of that. The the feminists said uh, any sacrifice taken by a woman in order to promulgate or sustain or maintain the human race is... Uh, a sacrifice that she should not be making. And even today, you know, whereas in the past, when a woman got pregnant, she put herself into a very significant risk of dying. That's not the case today. But even today, a woman uh, is expected to make significant sacrifices when she chooses to deliver a new human being into this world. Sacrifices that have to do with her health, long-term, with her looks, and with her ability to maintain and sustain and develop a career. And yet, today we ask our women politely to please consider doing that, because without it, we, the human race, will be kaput. Or at least in the West, right? But we know that these trends are not only in the West. They're in China, they're in Japan, and they're anywhere where women become more, quote-unquote, empowered and educated. So the elites, in their, in their fight, in their, in their desire to reduce the human population of planet Earth, their first line of attack was correctly against the half of humanity that has the exclusive ability to produce more humans, in other words, women. And the way they accomplished this, in part, was via feminism, which is this ideology that tells women that sacrificing anything for the sake of having children is a fool's errand, and they shouldn't be doing that, that, and denying them the existence of the joys of motherhood. In other words, feminism says... There is no joy in being a mother. That's a lie. But it's a lie that has caught on. The other part related to it in terms of hurting human reproduction is transgenderism. And that uh, and the way that we arrived at this ridiculous men with vaginas and front holes and uh, you know, uh, men who are, are allowed to walk into uh, women, uh, into girls' bathrooms and compete with girls in sports and so on. How we got there is an interesting case study in how insidious our progressive overlords uh, really are. Because 
they took something that was arguably a problem, and that's homosexuality. You see, we all have to admit, you know, those of my listeners who are straight males, and if you're honest with yourself, you have to admit that male homosexuality is disgusting. I mean, it elicits in us, in straight males, strong feelings of disgust. Now, this is something that's very deep. In other words, we, we, even as babies, even as babies, do not have to be taught that excrement smells bad. Which is an, it's an interesting question. Why? How, how do we know that it's bad? I mean, you know, it smells disgusting. Right? Things like excrement or... Uh, H2S, hydro, uh, um, I mean, uh, sulfur, I I keep forgetting the, you know, that rotten egg smell. I keep forgetting the chemical name for it, sorry. Um, Those things smell disgusting to us. We would never, ever ingest them, right? We would never, ever put them in in our mouths. This is is true for babies. They've made, made those experiments. Also, bitter versus sweet, you know. Babies turn their heads away. You know, newborn babies that were born a few hours ago, earlier, will turn their heads away from anything bitter and turn their heads toward something uh, sweet. So we have these instincts that we are born with, uh, which are designed to keep us substantially from danger because ingesting uh, something that's that. Uh, that is excrement or that is rotten egg or that is bitter is quite likely to hurt us unless we know that it isn't. Like later in life, we develop a taste for bitter, for example, for all kinds of of, uh, bitter beers, you know, ales and so on, because we know that they're safe for us. But babies don't know that, so bitter to them is bad and they will not... Uh, they put it in their mouth. And so, and, and this is something designed to protect us, right? Well, the same thing where human males feel have this feeling of disgust when confronted with male homosexuality, that's the same thing. Male sexuality is a form of sexual dysfunction that has always existed and sometimes was, was used also not as dis- dysfunction but as a kind of a sexual uh, indulgence in certain societies. But it was always quite marginal and looked at with, you know, people tell me, well, in, in ancient Greece and <clears throat> Rome and other societies, for example, all, all male, you know, all boys schools in, in England, pr- private schools, where the sons of the aristocracy uh, used to go to and maybe still do, there was, and maybe still is rampant homosexuality. So how can you say it's a perversion, it's wrong, it's, it's a dysfunction? And I say, well, I give the example of bitter. We know that bitter usually can be bad for us. Like I wouldn't taste, I, w- I wouldn't try to eat anything bitter while, let's say, hiking in the woods unless I knew for sure that it was edible. On the other hand, if it tasted sweet, I'd eat it if I had to. 
because it's much likely, much more likely to be wholesome for me uh, uh, rather than poisonous if it's sweet. On the other hand, though, I'll go to a bar and drink, you know, what the English call bitter, in other words, like ale, even though it is bitter, because I know that hops, that a plant that makes it bitter, is perfectly safe. Well, engaging in homosexuality, homosexual behavior is a kind of a pastime, though not for most of us, but for some of us, it's something that we do. But that does not mean that it's not that at the core, it's not a dysfunctional behavior, and it certainly is a behavior that is disgusting for many of us. Unfortunately, that was taken too far, and then there was a situation where uh, homosexuals were hurt, sometimes killed, more often ridiculed, shunned, and so on, and that's not acceptable. So what the progressive globalists did was they took that uh, feeling that most of us had that really any kind of persecution of homosexuals had to stop. And they guilted us into first normalizing homosexuality, in other words, uh, agreeing that that, that it's just another normal, functional, as opposed to dysfunctional mode of human behavior. And then it was all downhill from from there. And we got, once that dam broke, we got into this infinity of so-called genders and the rest of it. You know, I spent most of my life without even knowing that the word gender existed. And I'm, I'm 57, almost 58 years old. For the majority of my life, I'm happy to report, I've never encountered a homosexual person except maybe once. Now, probably there were more, but they were not known to me as homosexuals. And that was really, really good. I missed that time. That whole, this whole um, preoccupation that we have now with sexual identity is absolute anathema to the reproduction of us humans, which is exactly its purpose. The reason that we have uh, human beings with male genitalia competing with girls in sports, the reason we have all this, all these pronouns and all this totalitarian manipulation of language is only one. It's to stop us from procreating. That's it. It's to confuse us sexually, to discourage straight, in other words, heterosexual sex. In other words, the only sex that is functional, that is normal, is heterosexual sex, sex between a biological male and a biological female. That's the only sex that makes any sense because it is designed to reproduce, to produce a new human being. Well, not coincidentally, that particular type of sex, which is, like I said before, the only functional type of sex, 
is being vilified and uh, put down in every possible way. So in other words, what the progressive did to summarize this segment with veganism and transgenderism, they massively disrupted the sexual reproduction of the human species, of Homo sapiens. All right? I mean, Homo sapiens need sex and only one type of sex, that is heterosexual sex, in order to create new members of our species and in order for our species to not die out. And what the progressives did as part of their depopulation agenda was disrupt our sexuality. And in, and, and in that way, stop us from reproducing properly. In the next segment, we'll cover the other two prongs of the progressive fork. Stay tuned. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. For Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, canceling any of the freedoms that our Constitution guarantees is not an option. Five years on the air and we will not be silenced. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Welcome back to the show, my friends. So in the previous segment, we covered how uh, two of the four prongs of this fork that the progressives are trying to stick us with, feminism and transgenderism, were used to massively um, disrupt the sexual reproduction of uh, our human species, at least when it comes to the West, but really uh, almost everywhere around the globe. In this last segment, I want to cover the other two um, prongs of that fork, which are veganism and environmentalism. And both of these deal with this concept of energy. And being an engineer, I don't mean energy in some sort of metaphysical sense, like, you know, I, have, I, I get good vibes or whatever. You know, there's good energy in the room. No, no. I mean energy that can be measured by joules, by calories, um, 
and so on. In other words, real energy, right? And we humans need energy in order to feel good about ourselves, in order to feel happy. And we will only reproduce when we feel that way. Unhappy, half-starved humans, uh, maybe with the exception of Africa, typically do not reproduce. And that's true for many animals in the animal kingdom as well. We know that when, for animals, food supplies are abundant, population grows. It's, it's natural. But for us humans, it goes beyond that. If you look at uh, the heyday of America as an empire in the 1950s, it, was, it also coincided with what we call the baby boom. And I am uh, not an American, but I was born in 1963, so I guess I'm kind of the last of the baby boom generation. 50s was the sweet spot of that generation, so Americans were having lots and lots of kids. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why were they having lots and lots of kids? But the the answer is not difficult to, to ascertain. The answer is that that generation of Americans, in other words, the parents, was the happiest generation of human beings that has ever lived and before or since. And by, by happiest, I mean they had the most personal safety and security, but more importantly, they had the highest per capita energy consumption of any generation of human beings, including since that time. And that energy came into in two way in two forms one was food in other words the energy that we ingest and the other one was external uh, the energy that we use to heat our homes to cool our homes as i mentioned in the previous segment 1950s was also when air conditioning first came online and people started moving to places like florida and arizona and new mexico and and so on and all of a sudden Uh, you know, places that are hard to live in during the summer because of heat, unless you have air conditioning, which is very energy dense. And it was also the energy to kind of have fun. Americans had a love affair, and rightly so, with the internal combustion engine. So they had, uh, in their garages... Hundreds of cubic inches of internal combustion bliss, I call it. And they used it all the time to cruise around. I mean, look at the movies from the 50s or the movies that kind of spoof the 50s like Greece. Kids could afford, okay, not new, but these V8 cars and they cruised around in them. And uh, That's where a lot of babies were conceived, I imagine, the back of those cars and pickup trucks. The dad (coughs) had the truck and the mom had this enormous station wagon where a whole family and plus the dog could pile in into and go on a trip to Yellowstone or something. That's when hotels, uh, sorry, motels came around and drive-throughs and 
And that's not to say anything about other combustion engines, such as in boats and later ATVs and so on, bikes, motorbikes. So that generation of Americans was happy because it could consume vast amounts of energy per capita, in other words, per each human being. And when human beings are happy, they naturally want to get together, men and women, form families, have children, so that they have somebody new to share this happiness with. High energy consumption and the luxurious or just, uh, how should I say, good lifestyle, affluent lifestyle, without children feels kind of tacky and selfish, doesn't it? But when you have your children, when you add them to the equation, all of a sudden, rather than being selfish, it becomes an act of selflessness. Because you naturally want to share this wealth, share this excitement. If you have a boat, you want to take your kids on it with you, go fishing. If you have an SUV that you can pile in the back, you know, <clears throat> bicycles and canoes and hockey gear, you want to go and do stuff, right? I mean, you want to go and, and bike and play hockey and canoe on the lake and stuff like that, right? And, and you want to do it with your kids, it's natural. And that's why there was the baby boom in America, because people were happy, happy, because they could consume vast amounts of energy. But then came these concepts of veganism and environmentalism. Environmentalism came first, and it was true that America had places, especially around industrial cities like Pittsburgh, or what they call the Rust Belt, where there was perhaps uh, too much pollution in the in the in the in the rivers like the Allegheny and Monongahela and uh, in the air. And there was this. Uh, I grew up with this acid rain because of nitrous oxides that were released into the air from car engines that had no catalytic converters and <clears throat> from power plants that was that were burning coal and uh, oil. And uh, and then there was this whole uh, ozone hole caused by refrigerants that were based on chlorine gas and aerosols that were based also on the same. And so environmentalism started maybe from a good place, same as transgenderism. The idea that gays should be protected and not and not hunted down and killed was a good idea. The idea that American rivers and lakes and forests and, and, and just the air uh, had to be cleaned up was a good idea. And we did clean it up. We created technologies to collect most of those nitrate oxides. We switched to safer fluorine-based uh, 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 refrigerants and aerosols. Right? And the environment today is much, much cleaner than it was, let's say, in the 70s. But that's not really what the environmentalists wanted. They, just like with gays, they didn't want to solve the problem of 
gay persecution, which was the right problem to solve, and it was solved substantially. Same way, they didn't want to solve the problem of acid rain and the ozone hole. They wanted us to, to stop using energy as such. And because of that, environmentalism of the 1970s and 80s with uh, things that could be solved and measurably so. We could measure the pH, the acidity of raindrops. We could measure the size of the ozone hole, so-called. And those problems were solved. But then they came up with this genius called climate change and they said the, the culprit is carbon. Well, that's a genius, that's a stroke of genius. Why? Because any because carbon is at the heart of human life. Anything in order to live, we must oxidize carbon in the form of glucose. So the food that we ingest gets metabolized into glucose and then each and one of our cells combusts slowly this glucose and produces the gas known as carbon dioxide, CO2, which is the product of every combustion. It doesn't matter if this carbon is being oxidized as I speak in, my, in every cell in my body, more or less, because I just had a muffin for breakfast, but it gets metabolized very slowly, or the same carbon gets combusted, metabolized very quickly when I start my engine to go <clears throat> to town later today, where it kind of substantially explodes inside each and every cylinder. It doesn't matter. It's the same carbon oxidation which produces the same carbon dioxide, ga dioxide gas. So saying that carbon is the culprit is like saying that life is a culprit. Saying that carbon is bad amounts to saying that life is bad, which is exactly what they want to say. What they want to say is that life is bad. What they want to say is that there should be less life, less human life. That's their agenda. And the other genius part of this carbon uh, thing is that unlike every other pollutant, quote-unquote, of course carbon is not a pollutant, but you know what I mean? Unlike every other pollutant, the carbon thing can never be called solved because what is the goalpost for climate? So this, this whole hoax of climate change. Well, their idea is that any fluctuation in weather or in climate, any unusual event, whether it's a hurricane or some strong winds that promote a forest fire or anything of the, or, or an, you know, an unusually mild winter or an unusually cold winter, an unusually wet summer or an unusually dry summer, any deviation from quote unquote norm is supposedly bad and is supposedly the result of this extra carbon that by living we are releasing into the atmosphere. Well, so the idea is, I guess, that our weather should be always on, always at its average value, 
and never changing, that we should always have the average amount of hurricanes, that we should always be only at the average temperature per season, right? Well, clearly that's nonsense. That is not possible. But since every deviation is quote-unquote bad and is due to carbon, then there is never going to be a situation in which we solve the problem, right? That's the genius of it. This is a problem without a solution. They got burned when human ingenuity solved the acid rain and the ozone hole problem, so they designed the problem with no solution that can never be solved. As long as there are humans on planet Earth. So the idea behind uh, environmentalism is to make us humans energy poor. And I'm talking now about the external energy, the energy to heat and cool our homes and the energy for mobility for our vehicles, including electric vehicles, because it doesn't matter. That electricity electricity also comes from burning uh, fossil fuels. Or, uh, and, and there's really very few other ways to do it outside of nuclear. So it doesn't matter if, if, if this carbon gets combusted inside of your vehicle or if, you know, a few hundreds of kilometers away in some power station. It doesn't matter. It still gets combusted. Those joules of energy, those calories still have to travel and end up driving providing torque to the to the wheels of your car if you want to go somewhere so environmentalism reduces our external energy making us unhappy making us slaves in our own home making us pay unaffordable prices for anything that is remotely fun Smaller homes, smaller apartments, no mobility. Then came veganism. The healthiest foods that you, got, that, you, that you can consume, my friends, are dairy and meat. Eat lots of dairy and meat and eggs. It's good for you. And it makes you happy. Naturally. Unlike a lot of other substances we tend to ingest in one way or another. It gives us energy, it gives us happiness, it makes us want to procreate. But then came these vegans, which are the spawn of these devils, you know, these progressive globalists, and they said, wait a second, somehow eating dairy, meat, eggs is immoral. Well, that's nonsense, of course. If everybody became a vegan, millions of farm animals would be left to die from starvation because nobody would have the money to feed them. Right? And plus, we know that veganism is anti-human, inhuman, and inhumane because no human society has ever been vegan traditionally. Some societies like the Hindus were vegetarian because of religious reasons. That's a far cry from vegan. They consume lots and lots of 
clarified butter and cheese and so on. Veganism makes you stupid and unhappy because you cannot never consume enough energy to be smart and happy. And that's what they want. So my friends, I'm going to close out this show by asking you to resist this individual attack on each and every one of us, this concentrated attack on each and every one of us. Eat. Eat meat, eat dairy, eat eggs. Consume lots of energy while you still can. Go places. Fire up your trucks and take your kids and go. Enjoy it while you can. And that's also an act of resistance. Have lots of straight sex. Have children. Use sex for what it was intended to procreate and to make sure that our species doesn't die out. That is the ultimate act of resistance, my friends. Stay free. See you next time.